Good morning. <clears throat> Quick reminder too, I know Tom mentioned it right at the beginning, but if you snuck in late tonight, six o'clock, everyone uh, is welcome to come back as we will uh, have our uh, second time meeting with Brett Wagner. Uh, I know some questions came up after the last meeting, so this would be uh, a great opportunity if others have come up that you've thought about since then to, uh, to bring tonight to, to ask him. Um, if you are a member uh, of this church, please give every effort to have at least one member of your, of your household here. Uh, again, we're quickly approaching a, a tentative uh, voting date, so um, this is an important night for us as a church, so I would encourage you, please, be here. And then uh, to those of you that, that texted me throughout the week, encouraging me, telling me that you were praying for me, thank you. I received a number, a number of those texts, and, and those, were, uh, those were very encouraging, so thank you for doing that. <clears throat> well, you have may, maybe have heard or maybe you've said yourself, I don't like reading the Old Testament. It's just an angry God, not the forgiving God that we read about in the New Testament. The Old Testament is just a God of wrath, while the New Testament is the God of love. We sometimes treat the Old Testament like a completely different story, when in reality our entire Bible is one. Old Testament, New Testament, combining to create the divine revelation of Christ, and the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. If I could sum up the Bible in one sentence, I would say that it's God's redemptive story story of how God saves and restores his people to himself. And it's important that whenever we open up God's word, we know where we're at in that story. We'll better understand God's teaching when we know where in redemptive history that this text has us. As Mark Dever has summed up and one Eric Myers has quoted time and time again from this pulpit, the Old Testament can be described as promises kept, while the New Testament can be described through Christ I'm sorry, promises made, while the New Testament can be described through Christ as those promises being kept. So that's going to be important for us to remember this morning as we work through this story that is actually one of the sweetest stories in your entire Bible. It's common in the Old Testament to have a small story that shows a much greater picture. And that's what 2 Samuel 9 does. Think about um, Jonah being saved by the great fish, uh, which if you've been here some time, you've only heard it preached like four times in the past couple of years, so we should be very familiar, familiar with that text. Or Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. Small stories that paint a much bigger picture as the whole gospel unfolds. So in this text of 2 Samuel, King David will show us glimpses of the sovereign love of Christ towards an undeserving people. Honestly, a story I've often overlooked. We came across it in a family devotion, uh, a, a children's family devotion that we use for family worship. And for the past, past few months, I've been wrestling with this text that has just constantly been in the back of my mind. There's so many layers and depth to it because it ultimately displays the kindness of God, even in the Old Testament, right? This is the wrathful, angry God that we don't want to talk about. And then, Christian, we're also going to see ourselves in this text today. Often the Word of God can be like a mirror, where we will connect to an individual or a people and be able to relate directly to what the Scripture says. But sometimes that gets difficult because sometimes it's hard to identify 
with who we should identify correctly with in those scriptures. We have to see ourselves rightly. So usually the easiest way to do that when you look at a book or a text like we're going to read now is look to find out who the hero of the story is. What person is overcoming great obstacles? Who is making a great sacrifice? And then you have to ask yourself this question, who else is in the story? Because I'm not the hero. You're not the hero. Start with the flawed, crippled guy, and then you're kind of off to a good start. So because this is an unfamiliar text, I'm going to read it one more time. That's 2 Samuel 9. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning as we open your word. Through your spirit, Father, reveal your kindness and your love for us, Father, the love that originally drew us to you this morning in this text, Father. May you be glorified in this time. Amen. Amen. So even though we're going to be in this book of 2 Samuel in chapter of 9, I want a text to be in the back of your mind, and that's 1 John 3. So what kind of love the Father has given to... I'm sorry... See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So a quick recap for what has happened up to this point in 2 Samuel, a few bullet points. At the very end of 1 Samuel, the book that Tom mentioned before, Saul and three of his sons, including Jonathan, had died in the last battle of that book. So the king was dead. Saul's fourth son, Ish-bosheth, was appointed by man to be the king over Israel, while David, 
received the honor of God, from God of being the king over Judah, which ultimately led to a divided kingdom, the north and the south. Eventually, about a year and a half in, Ish-bosheth was murdered, which led to David being appointed king of Israel, and he uses that opportunity to unite the north and the south. David moves the ark to Jerusalem, and at that point, God's appointed king, David, is king over God's appointed people, all of Israel. God makes a covenant with David in chapter 7 that his sons would sit on the throne, referring to Solomon and eventually the promise of Jesus. Israel has now began to have military success under David's rule. God gave them prosperity in this time. And that brings us to chapter 9, where in chapter 9 now jumps down the road. David's been king and in power for roughly 20 years. And the text shifts from his accomplishments that David had overseen in this success of Israel and now focuses on this story that's going to display the love of Christ for his people. We're going to see, ultimately, the gospel. Verse 1. And David said, there is, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So who was Jonathan? Jonathan was the eldest son of Saul. Culturally, he would have been the rightful heir to the throne. He was also David's dear friend. In 1 Samuel 18, you can read that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. We know that Jonathan had given David his armor, gave him his sword for battle. He wanted his friend to have the best of what he had. This shows the, the relationship that, that they had, the friendship, the brotherhood that they shared together. Jonathan warned David on multiple occasions in 1 Samuel of his father, King Saul's attempts to kill David. Jonathan also gave his first rights as the oldest son of the king to David. When Jonathan died, David's response is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. These two were very close. And while Jonathan was his closest friend, Saul, Jonathan's father, was David's enemy. Ever since David killed Goliath in 1 Samuel, Saul was jealous of David. Tried to kill him on several occasions. So we must remember throughout this sermon and throughout this text, the house of Saul was an enemy of the house of David. But here David remembers and keeps the promise he had made to Jonathan and to King Saul, his enemy, in 1 Samuel 18 and then 20 and 24, that he would not destroy the family line of Saul. It would have been very customary in this time Whenever a new king, if it was from a different family line, was placed on the throne, it would be customary for that king to then wipe out every person from this previous family line to stop any sort of uprising that could possibly happen. They would slaughter everyone from the oldest to the youngest. You couldn't have that other family present. You couldn't have somebody trying to create rebellion under the king. So it would have been perfectly right for David to do that, 
But what David does is out of the ordinary and also very honorable. He's going to keep his covenant with his friend. But that should not be seen as David being passive or weak. As we know from previous chapters in this book, and if you continue to read on, David has no problem judging the wicked and sometimes those that don't deserve it. So Ziba then is brought to David, a former servant of Saul, but someone who had influence and at one time had to have some authority. We know that from the text, 15 sons and 20 servants, and he knows everyone. Probably a direct servant to King Saul, may have been one of his, his main assistants. And Ziba informs the king of the one living individual from the family of Saul, Mephibosheth, the son of his close friend. Now, Mephibosheth had spent his life in hiding. In 2 Samuel 4, we read at the age of four, when Saul and Jonathan died, fearing what would happen to him, his nurse took him to flee. And while they were escaping, it says in verse 4 that he fell and became lame. We read in our text today that he was in the city of Lodabar, a city with very little significance. We know that he's older, he has a son, and now he's told the king would like to see him. Remember, Mephibosheth is from the royal family of Saul, the enemy of the house of David. Considering that his father was Prince Jonathan, more than likely he would have been a prince, potentially one day a king. And in one battle, his grandfather the king, his father, two of his uncles, gone. The only other son to Saul, his uncle Ishbosheth, was murdered. And so this boy is rushed out of town at a young age by his nurse to spare his life, only to fall and become paralyzed. So he spent the rest of his life in hiding, poor, crippled, unable to work, unable to care for himself, being waited on, not because of a seat of honor, but because of a disability and his inability to do anything. Remember, he was from that family, the enemy of David. It never would have crossed his mind to go to the king. There never would have been any reason. He was in hiding. He did not want the king to know he was alive. He had nothing to offer anyone, let alone King David. He was damaged. His life had changed 180 degrees from what it initially started out to as the child of a prince. And now he's told, hey, the king wants to see you. In his mind, he's got to be thinking, and we know this from verse 8, he's thinking, my life is over. What promise I had as a young boy has been nothing but misery. My life is going to end today at the hands of King David. There is no good reason for the king to bring Mephibosheth to himself. Considering that he was four when he was rushed into hiding, there's no evidence to support that Mephibosheth was aware of this covenant between David and his father, let alone their friendship. As we see, we have to remember, too, David was a forerunner for Christ, meaning he wasn't Jesus, but he was God's elected king. So we will see characteristics in David from a much smaller scale that show us glimpses 
of who the real Redeemer will be. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. So there's, there's two things I want to point out about the character of David here. One, this king cares about the poor and needy. And two, this king intend, attends to, intends to keep his promise. When Mephibosheth fell, the Bible says he became lame. He would have this physical issue always. His, leg, his legs no longer worked. His fall led to a permanent mark that all would see. His fall caused a mark. There is big symbolism here. It's Genesis 3 presented in 2 Samuel 9 in the life of Mephibosheth. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, small story portraying a much bigger story. Mephibosheth needed to be saved. He was marked with an unfixable injury. Just like all mankind is born into a life of misery and sin until God the Father opens our eyes to the saving work of Christ. Hopefully we see in this story, as I have as I've studied it, that the poor and the needy is representing you and I. Before we came to this saving faith, we were helpless. The remedy was Christ, but until our eyes were opened, we wanted nothing to do with him. Perfectly content in our state. Everything we put our hope into always eventually let us down. We weren't happy. We didn't have true peace or hope. Mephibosheth's physical mark represents the mark of sin and death for all those who are without Christ. His fall mirrors the fall of Adam in the garden. So we read in verse 6, that Mephibosheth fell on his face and paid homage to the king. Homage means to show respect or worship. Also means to bow down, which you would probably expect wasn't an easy thing for a lame man to do. And he does it twice. Once before the blessing and once after. It's the same word, but I would assume that there's little more meaning to that homage the second time around. And Christian, I believe this is how we are. That first time you believed the gospel, there was worship. We were thankful. What was foolishness now made sense. You were dead, and now you were spiritually alive. And that is beautiful. But as we grow to learn more and more about Christ, we should be drawn to a greater and greater, greater desire to worship the king. We talk a lot about theology here, and we love theology, but what's the, what's, the, what's the point of knowing God more? It's to love God more, to understand more about him, that we have greater affection for who he is and what he's done. So how did David respond? He responds with four promises, three in verse 7 and one in verse 10. <clears throat> verse 7, and David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you the kindness of for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So the three promises here, he shows him kindness. He restores the land of Saul, 
And he tells him that you will eat at the table always. The fourth one coming in verse 10 is that he is going to provide provision for his land. He is going to go give him laborers that are going to keep and get the produce from, from the land that was promised. The word kindness here translates in Hebrew to the word hased. Now, this means far more than what you and I mean today when we talk about kindness. It's not merely talking about a, a, a niceness or um, being considerate or gentle. When Titus goes to a friend's house, what do we tell him? Titus, be kind. What are we saying to him? Buddy, mind your manners. Listen to who's in charge. Be a good friend. That's not what King David is getting at with this kindness. This word has said is the same word used in other texts in your, old, in your Old Testament to describe terms like steadfast love, loyalty, covenantal love. It's actually the same word used in Exodus 34 when God appeared before Moses at Mount Sinai and proclaims his name to Moses and reveals his character. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in hased, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. This love is a keeping love, a covenantal love that is used to describe the character of God. David understood this love of Christ. That's the only way that he had the ability to show it to Mephibosheth. He understood it because he was one of God's children. He had been adopted by this kindness, by this steadfast, committed love of God. Because it pursued and rescued him, he was able to pursue and offer kindness to Mephibosheth. Again, in Isaiah 63, 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There it is again. So that first blessing, kindness. Second blessing, restoring the family land. I tried to find this out and I could not, so if you happen to know this, let me know after. I don't know how much land Saul actually had. He was the king. I would assume it was a lot. Here's what I do know. 15 sons and 20 servants of Ziba were commanded to take care and preserve and farm this land. Again, that's the fourth blessing being tied into the second blessing. What is David doing here? He's showing the son of a close friend abundance of generosity. So now Mephibosheth is not only receiving this loyal kindness of David, he's also receiving significance and wealth. Produce that, that would require the work of 35 men Put that into perspective, I asked a former expert in the golf community how many maintenance workers work eight-hour shifts at an average golf course per day, and he said eight to ten. So you could imagine if the king's commands, these 35 workers, that their entire job is going to be to work and produce the, the, the till of this land from sun up to sun down, that that land is significant. 
Why is that important? Because land is important. People would know the name of Mephibosheth because he owned that land. His name would matter. So that may cause you to ask the question, I became a Christian, I didn't get land. If that was the case, we probably as a church asked you to donate some because we wouldn't be meeting in the Washington Square Shopping Center anymore. If you were not aware that this is the Washington Square Shopping Center, it is. But to answer your question, you will receive land. We've been promised the new heavens and the new earth, and we will dwell with God. Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, sh neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So yes, you will inherit land at some point. So let's connect the third blessing to this covenantal love that David is showing. You shall eat at my table always. The king's table would have been set apart for his family. So not only does King David not end this man as he rightfully could have, but insists that he now will eat every meal for the rest of his life at his table with his family. So not only would he be comfortably fed, but he would have the company of King David and his children. And now if we keep reading through 2 Samuel, that might not always be the best company. <laughs> there were some sketchy folks in that family, but stay right here for this moment in this story when you consider where Mephibosheth just was in this city of Lodabar, forgotten by himself, only those that were providing everything for him because he could not do it for himself. And now he's being told he's going to have every meal at the king's table. And remembering that he was lame, you also have to understand that as you, again, as you read through 2 Samuel, David had some very good-looking children. He had, a, he had a, a very nice-looking family. Joab probably would have been there. David's nephew, who was the king of his, or the, the commander of his army, a mighty man. Eventually, King Solomon would have been at that table. And every meal, Mephibosheth would work his way to his chair and be reminded of the kindness of David. What is David doing here? He's adopting Mephibosheth into his family as one of his own. David is restoring Mephibosheth to a life that by his family line, he probably should have experienced. Culturally, that's what he would have expected as his life went on. The fellowship that he now has is important. Because as David brings Mephibosheth to his family, so does God for his children give his church. Christian, you and I, 
are united to one another by the blood of Christ. To encourage one another, to build one another up, to challenge and correct each other when that time is needed. We even have a meal to partake together. We will do it later today. Chapter 30, paragraph 1 of our confession, the London Baptist Confession. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge for their communion with him and with each other. So church, it's for our, it's for our nourishment when we come to the Lord's table. We're remembering and we're showing the sacrifice that Christ made in a physical way. And it's one of the ways that we are united to one another. So he was shown kindness. He was shown land. He was given provision for that land and the table. So how does Mephibosheth respond? Verse 8, and he paid homage again and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He's shocked. The term dead dog is used several times in First and Second Samuel. It's an insult, usually as a way to put down somebody else. But in, in this term, he points it back at himself. He knows he's nothing. He knows he doesn't deserve to live. He is from the family that is at an enemy of the king. So he's thinking, you're going to do what? He's in awe of this kindness. So he pays respect to the king. So I'm curious at what point the irony of all of this started to settle in for Mephibosheth. Considering that he was the only one of the house of Saul, still alive. The only reason he's alive, because his nurse took him and they fled when he was four. But that was also the event that led to him being crippled, which led to his poorness and his inability to maintain or take care of himself, led to his zero significance. But everyone in his family had died. Family members murdered. So I'm curious at what point does he realize that if he was never rushed out of town, if he had never become, had this mark of brokenness put on him, I wonder if he realized at what point he would have been murdered too as a part of that family. So my question for you, Christian, is careful when we question what God is doing in our lives. We don't know how God will use the circumstances that we are going through right now to ultimately display his glory. King David has restored this undeserving man to a place of honor. And if it wasn't for his fall in the process, he would have missed all of it. So does our suffering display the kindness of Christ in our lives? Or to put it more blankly, do we suffer well? We also need to remember, as I said before, that this story displays a much bigger picture. This is ultimately the story of Christ redeeming his people. So we shouldn't read this story and say to ourselves, what a great guy David is. 
we should read this story knowing that one who has fulfilled all of the promises made and say, what a great Christ. Because while David looks pretty good right now, and he is, he's only two chapters away from committing one of the most grievous sins in your entire Bible. David shows us characteristics of this loving kindness, but only Christ can give us the ultimate hope. It is him and him alone who pursues and redeems his people. It is him who blesses abundantly. John 1.16, for from, for, from, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. It is him who not only saves, but keeps and provides for his children. So two simple applications from this text. And I hope you're seeing the connection between this text and the bigger picture of the gospel. For the Christian here today, remember. Remember the kindness of God that drew you to himself. Remember that we have added and we will add nothing to our salvation. Like Mephibosheth, we do not belong at God's table by our own merit. The text this morning closely aligns with the parable of the great banquet in Luke chapter 14. And ultimately, we got to remember who was invited to that dinner party. The poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. Well, who's that describing? That's you and that's me. And remember that that kindness of God is what keeps you at the table. It's Romans 2 teaches us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So if you're here this morning and you've had a difficult week or weeks or past three years as many have, maybe you've been constantly fighting with your spouse or children, maybe you are feeling as a parent or as a friend that you failed, maybe there's a state of sin that you continue to fall into and you struggle. Maybe you're dealing with anxiety today. What do we take from this text? We look at verse 13. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and he always ate at the king's table. Church, you remember the covenant love the Hased of God the Father who purchased you by the blood of Christ. Your seat at that table will never be removed. If you are his, you are his, and he's not letting you go. So you come to the table with the rest of your church with confidence in a great Savior, and you eat. Lamentations 3, 22, and 20, 22 to 24 the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So church, remember. And if you're here this morning and you do not know this love of Christ, I pray that you would believe. You, like Mephibosheth, as a member of the family of Saul, are an enemy of the king. Your life is rebellion to a perfect and holy God. There is nothing you can do to earn your saving. It took David pursuing Mephibosheth. But here's the good news. Not David, but Jesus Christ came. He lived the life that you and I could not live, one without sin, 
He died a death that you and I deserved so sinners like us can have fellowship with God the Father. So today, I encourage you to believe. The English Puritan Thomas Manton said this about the love of God. Love is at the bottom of all. We may give a reason of other things, but we cannot give a reason of his love. God showed his kindness, power, justice, and holiness in our redemption by Christ. If you ask why he made so much ado about a worthless creature raised out of the dust of the ground at first and now disordered himself and could be of no use to him, we have an answer at hand, because he loved us. If you continue to ask, but why did he love us? We have no other answer but because he loved us. For beyond the first rise of things, we cannot go. And the same reason is given by Moses. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. That is, in short, he loved you because he loved you. The same reason is given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good to thy sight. All came from his free and undeserved mercy. Higher we cannot go in seeking after the cause of what is done for our salvation. So a couple final takeaways from this, cha from this chapter in 2 Samuel. To recap something I said earlier, but we'll phrase it a little differently now. God cares about the poor and needy. God intends to keep his promise. When God the Father sees his children, he sees the glory of Christ. Because just as David showed kindness to a poor, crippled, home, crippled hopeless man because of his covenant with Jonathan, so does God the Father show grace and mercy to wretched, dead dog sinners such as you and I because of Christ. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Amen. So every Sunday, following every sermon, we respond by taking communion together. We come to the table that we just talked about. We do this in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and in remembrance of what he accomplished for us on the cross through his death. 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So church, I would encourage this, us this morning as we come forward to take this meal to remember this kindness of God. We will have plenty of time for fellowship in a few minutes after service is over. So I would, I would encourage you to take this time seriously. Think about what we're doing. I've always been encouraged by Pastor Tom. He says he sits up here, and as people are walking down the aisles to receive the communion, he's seeing, he's seeing his brothers and sisters, and he's praying for you. He's thanking God for you, each one of you that pass him by. 
So I would encourage you to take this time to be reverent before God as we come to this table. We are remembering and proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death this morning. So you're invited to take this communion with us if you are a baptized believer, if you have confessed your sin and placed your trust for salvation in Christ, and if you're committed to a local church, either this one or another church that preaches the same gospel that you've heard here today. We'll ask you to come down the center aisles in a minute, collect the emblems from uh, a couple of us that would like to serve you, return to the outside to your seats. We'll take this as a family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not deserve what we are about to partake in. But because of your kindness, Father, you have drawn us to yourself. So I pray that, Lord, as we, <clears throat> as we, as we, as we take this, these emblems together, Lord, with, with our church family, Father, that we would be encouraged this morning that we would be thankful for one another, that we would be thankful, Lord, that not only did you save us, but you gave us an abundance of blessing. Thank you for stories like 2 Samuel 9. Thank you that the story of Mephibosheth is the story of so many of us, helpless sinners, Father, who did not deserve grace, but you showed us grace. Father, for those that do not know you, Lord, I pray that right now, this moment, Father, they would turn to you and be saved. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.